right, welcome back to another episode of Vernacular Podcast. My better half is not joining me today, but I am being joined by my brother-in-law, Chandler Ride, who's been on the show before to talk about films. I think most recently to talk about Ad Astra, right, Chandler? Actually, Star Wars. Oh, that's right, um, of course. We talked about Star Wars in uh, December and interesting conversation. It was for sure. No, I really enjoyed that. That was the conversation that we had just before I saw the movie. So I was flying blind, but you had yes. you given me some spoilers, and I think we had a, a good discussion. And then most of what we talked about was was validated a week or two later when I did get a when chance to go see it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, welcome yeah, I've back, had Chandler. Lots of interesting conversations with with friends uh, about it since then. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating movie uh, for all the reasons that we talked about, not for many of the reasons that I think people probably hoped it would be. Um, right, going into it, but anyway, welcome back to Vernacular, Chandler. I uh, thank you. I'm I'm happy to uh, have you back on and talk about TV and film again. Yes, one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> yeah, well, this is the the conversation we're about to have today is something that we've been talking about having really since I think Thanksgiving when we were sitting around a table and talking about this very topic. The topic, uh, in general terms, being what makes a film art what qualifies a film as good art. And uh, there's a lot of things to talk about. We'll talk about Martin Scorsese's comments, criticizing the Marvel series. But in my mind, some of his, his critiques of the Marvel series started a series of thought that led me to question, why do we say that a film is good? Why do we say that a film is artistic? Um, and all of those things. And I think... It's it's a in in some respects it's unfortunate that we haven't yet had a chance to have this conversation on the podcast. But in other respects, I think the timing is pretty good because there are a lot of people who are finding themselves stuck at home, self isolating, quarantining, uh, whatever the case is, watching mm-hmm. a ton of movies and TV streaming services. Uh, you know, you have people with like the the big five: HBO, Netflix, Hulu, Apple TV, Amazon Prime. Uh, not to mention Disney Plus if you have kids. And uh, yes. and there's a lot of stuff to watch on there. Uh, not all of it, I think, would qualify as art by the the definitions, uh, certainly of Martin Scorsese, but probably of you or me either. And I mean, look, I'm not saying that you can't watch art, but I, I think that it's uh, important to, with the limited time that we do have, to, um, to focus on what you're watching and why you're watching it. Um, so, Chandler, with that said, do you have any recommendations for people who are sitting at home like we are, and thinking, I need to find something good to stream. Yeah, well, I mean, there's um, for sure an embarrassment of riches of things that you can watch. And, of course, these days you can kind of get anything um, through Amazon Prime or you know iTunes or YouTube or other places like that. Um, so, we'll be mentioning a number of films later in the episode. Um, and you can find a lot of them, you know, just to rent digitally. Uh, but there are definitely some things that uh, come to mind from uh, my wife and I have been watching HBO a fair amount lately. And we recently just finished McMillions, uh, um, really solid documentary series uh, about a McDonald's uh, Monopoly game fraud. Um, and then so if you like true crime, McMillions is really fascinating. Um we also really love Barry uh, with Bill Hader's. Uh, it's his new show, um, which I think Bill Hader in this show has been trying to prove that he is more than just an SNL, you know, comedy sketch guy, but that he can actually do and, and direct um, 
serious heavy uh, television. Um, and so it's very funny, but it's also about um, him questioning whether or not he can uh, change who he is. He's a hitman uh, who falls in love with acting and decides that he wants to leave the hitman business and join uh, a theater uh, program. Um, we also, uh, a lot of the Academy Awards nominated films are you know available for, for streaming. And so if you miss some of those, my wife and I just caught up with Parasite last night. Uh, so that was very good. Um, and also I've heard a lot of buzz around uh, this show. I think it's called Tiger something. It's a, it's a documentary series that has just exploded on my Instagram in the past couple of days. And now all of my film friends are, are freaking out about this new show. So I'm, I'm excited to check it out. It's on Netflix. But uh, if you're looking for something interesting, then maybe give it a give it a watch. Yeah, that really has won social media for the past week. I think uh, it's called Tiger King. I haven't watched a, yes, a minute. King. I haven't watched a minute of it yet, Chandler. But I think I'm going to go ahead and cave and do so because I've heard that it is just absolutely insane. Uh, I don't even really know what it's about except this guy who I, I've I, heard. Go I've ahead. heard it's the like the Fargo of Florida. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, interesting. Well, that, that actually sounds more interesting than what I thought. I thought it was just like a dude who liked tigers and trained them or something. Yeah. <laughs> It's really not clear from the memes that I'm seeing on my Instagram feed, so uh, so I, I will find out. Those are those are good recommendations, Chandler. I've not seen McMillions, but I really want to. It's on my list. Um, we uh, we temporarily gave up our HBO subscription to get a Disney Plus, Hulu, ESPN subscription, and I think really mm. the the future of our media consumption is going to look like that, where we're sort of rotating between streaming services uh, to maximize maximize use yeah. of our budget. It's really the way to go these days because, you know, we had a brief period where everything was on Netflix and we had, you know, this this like $10 a month and you can kind of get anything you want. Um, and uh, now we're kind of getting back to like cable packages where you have oh, to totally, like buy yeah. individual channels. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's much more segmented than, than it ever was. Uh, and a lot of the content deals that places like Netflix and uh, Hulu slash ABC make are exclusives which means if netflix is streaming it nobody else can and so if you want it you have to go to netflix to get it same with uh, hbo i mean hbo's model all along has been exclusive licensing so right. uh it's right. you can't get the stuff on hbo anywhere else with with a few exceptions i think amazon has a content deal with hbo and so some of like the, like the wire i think is on amazon prime um mm -hmm. but for the most part i mean the really big certainly the current hbo stuff you're not going to find anywhere but hbo just because that's yes. their that's their model. So yeah, I think that is the yeah. way the way ahead. Uh, the one recommendation I have for uh, listeners is to check out The Stranger, which is on Netflix. It is Harlan Coben's latest work. If you're, if you're familiar with Harlan Coben, he's a mystery writer um, and uh, a, a crime writer, and he I think lives in New Jersey, but he's now done three British um, versions of his storylines. The first one was Safe, uh, that stars Michael C. Hall of Dexter fame. Uh, really good, engaging mystery. And the second was The Five. Not quite as good, but still good. And then the third one, The Stranger. Uh, I think The Stranger is probably not quite as good as Safe, but better than The Five. But but Harlan Coben's really good at narrating these uh, tightly woven sequences across six to eight episode seasons uh, in which it's a it's a uh, you know tightly constrained narrative. Um, all a mystery. And you really have no idea what's going on until the big reveal at the very end. Um, really interesting. It's always the person you least expect, uh, et cetera, et cetera. 
um, and quite fascinating. So I definitely recommend The Stranger. Sally and I watched that over the course of about a week um, last week, and it was it was pretty good. So that's a good one to weather coronavirus uh, 19. And I do want to say, Chandler, uh, I'm sure you would echo this as well. When I'm talking about things to stream during coronavirus, I'm not at all trying to minimize the real suffering that is going on out there from coronavirus. We are sure. we're very grateful to people who are on the front lines of that. Uh, the obvious one being healthcare workers who are taking care of the sick and ailing in our hospitals and clinics, uh, but also the less heralded heroes, people who are keeping cities essential services afloat, people you know collecting garbage, uh, people stocking grocery store shel- grocery store shelves, uh, all of those things, people keeping our our water and electricity flowing. I mean, all of that is is fantastic. Uh, and I want to express my gratitude to those people and my condolences to anyone who has been struck hard by this virus or nobody knows somebody who's been struck hard or taken from them um, too soon. So my condolences as well. I'm not trying to minimize all of that. What I am trying to do is just uh, bring some uh, bring some enjoyable listening to people who are stuck at their homes like we are, Chandler, and uh, yeah. and thinking, what should I watch on on Netflix or Hulu or HBO? What's next? And uh, more importantly, perhaps, how can I determine what is what is good to watch? What constitutes art and film? But the second thing is, I don't want to be a snob about this. I mean, I uh, you know I've been known to watch some films that I would say are definitely not art, and sometimes I think <laughs> sometimes it's okay to uh, to just turn on something while you're folding laundry, or you're just really tired at the end of the day, and you just you don't want to kind of actively engage. You just want to to, for lack of a better word, to veg out. And, uh, and you can definitely do that. And I'm not saying that that is a uh, somehow morally wrong thing to do. Uh, but I do think it's still a valuable conversation to have a conversation or a, a valuable conversation to have about what constitutes art uh, in film. And so, Chandler, that's what I want to talk about today. Yeah, totally. And, and also, I mean, I, uh, there's a lot of subjectivity in this kind of a discussion. And, you know, what one person thinks is brilliant, another person could think is terrible. Um, but I still think that there is some, I mean, I, I want to make this maybe semi-radical claim that there are some real criteria that we can use and uh, some things that uh, we can actually argue about and agree upon um, as being good markers. Um, but then also to reiterate what, what you said, um, there are uh, you know, it's, it's totally great to, um, find the stuff that you love. Um, and then, uh, I mean, I think learn from it, you know, like, I mean, I love watching the office. <laughs> I've seen every episode a few times. Watched an episode um, last night, but, actually. Yeah. 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 But, uh, but as I've been working on a, a short film, actually, I, I realized that I've been learning things as I've been watching the office that I'm now kind of using in, in some of these characters. Um, and so, uh, I guess, Probably the overall um, message here is that really uh, you can learn from from whatever you're watching um, as long as you approach it a certain way, and we'll get more into that later. Yeah, well, uh, I want to come back to that that short film that you're doing. We don't need to go into it in details. I think it's still shrouded in mystery a little bit, but uh, we can tease that maybe for listeners at the end. But let's go back to this claim that you you, you just said was partially radical, and that is essentially that there is a large amount of subjectivity in how we evaluate art in film, but there is also a degree of objectivity. That is, there are established criteria that we can apply to a film or television show, some sort of visual medium, and determine whether or not it could potentially meet the criteria of art. So can you expand on that a little bit? What do you think are some of those criteria, or maybe more simply, what might be one of those criteria? Yes. 
I'm 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 going to lean on a quote from Robert Frost, um, who is a great poet. I think a lot of people you know know a little bit about Frost, um, but he said that poetry begins in delight and ends in wisdom. And I think that this applies not just to poetry, um, but to a lot of different artistic mediums, including film, um, begins in delight and ends in wisdom. And I'm going to give a, a simple example. I don't know, about a month ago before um, you know everything got shut down because of coronavirus, my wife and I went to uh, the Detroit Institute for the Arts. And, you know, we went, it's an art museum. We went around and we looked at uh, various paintings. And the one that stood out to me that uh, I remembered most clearly was um, a, a painting by, uh, I believe it's Frederick Edwin Church uh, called Cotopaxi. And it's just this brilliant painting of this volcano exploding uh, in South America. And when you first look at it, you're just struck by, first of all, it's enormous um, and it's very finely painted. Uh, you know, the colors are rich and vibrant and it's beautiful to look at. And so there's a delight in, in looking at this uh, painting and, you know, there's a symmetry to it. Um, there's a, a really, uh, you know, church was brilliant at, at doing realistic landscapes uh, and especially at uh, showing the way that the light kind of strikes across uh, a particular swath of land and trees and water and all that. And so it's really beautiful from just kind of a, a, a viewer perspective. But then when you kind of read the title card underneath it, um, he wrote this or he, he painted this painting during the Civil War. Uh, and so there's this subtext of this explosion of violence that has erupted um, during his time that uh, is represented in this volcano. Uh, and so when I talk about delight and wisdom, uh, it starts by just apprehending and, and looking at it and, and being struck by, you know, whatever it is. You can call it wonder. You can call it just enjoying the, the image. Uh, and then the wisdom comes when you actually start to think about it. Um, and so uh, I think that one of the ways, one of the simple ways that we can start to understand um, and start to evaluate whether or not a work of art is any good and whether or not a movie is worth really watching and thinking about watching again, recommending to others is uh, when you get past the delight, you know, is there wisdom? Uh, can you kind of chew on it for a little while? Yeah, I really like that, that quote a lot. I think it, it, it resonates with me certainly for how I evaluate art. And I mean, look, I'm not pretending that I'm a great critic uh, by any means. There are folks who are way better at this than I am, but I still think it resonates with, you know, your average Joe like me, who can think back to times that I've engaged with what I would consider art. And I am struck with this delight at first. And then you look at it and you contemplate it and you ponder it and some insights come to you. And maybe those insights are not apparent. Maybe they, they never fully take shape, but, but there's something there. There's something uh, under the surface that you just have to scratch a little bit to, to get an essence of, um, I think you've seen this in my office, Chandler, but I have this painting uh, called Nighthawks by Edward Hopper hanging up on the wall. Yeah. And yeah. I, I can't quite describe it. I mean, as you said, this is subjective, right? So I'm sure lots of people can look at Nighthawks and think that's like, that's cool, I guess. Good, good job painting. But for me, when I was looking um, through a book of Hopper paintings, I saw Nighthawks and uh, it just, 
it sort of stuck out at me and it just struck me. And I just was like, I need to have that print. I want to have that in my house. Um, mm-hmm. So Sally got it for me as a gift. And uh, even now, actually, as you were talking about, you know, starting into light and ending in wisdom, I still look at that painting and just like there's something about it that grabs me, specifically me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it yeah. might it might not grab you in the same same way, but it grabs me. And I think that grabbing is the initial delight. And then I, I look at it and I contemplate and my eye is drawn to every corner of the painting and every part of the the canvas. Um, and, and there's something there. There's something deeper. Now, uh, if you were to ask me, what have I learned from this painting by Edward Hopper? I don't think I could necessarily articulate it or put it into words. But there's something there. I think that's the wisdom that Frost is talking about. Yeah, I, I want to um, kind of go into what I mean by delight and what I think Frost is getting at with delight. Um, there's a certain kind of surface level delight uh, that you get, you know, just literally on the surfaces of things, you know, when something looks nice. Um, and that's obviously a part of it. Uh and so, you know, I might go to watch uh, one, of, one of my favorite action movies, uh, Mission Impossible Fallout. Um, and there's a certain level of spectacle. Um, and spectacle is a word that, that gets thrown around a lot in context of uh, franchise, you know, blockbuster type movies like Mission Impossible, like Marvel, like any of these um, kind of huge budget uh, summer movies. Spectacle is what's first and foremost. And so there is a delight in that. But I think beneath that and kind of deeper than that, there's a kind of aesthetic delight uh, that you can experience the mastery of craft and of a, a beauty of execution um, where uh, you might, you, you know, you're noticing the subtleties of it and the subtle contours of uh, the aesthetic experience. Or that's kind of what's delightful, you know? Um and so I'm going to use an example just from like, you know, one of my uh, favorite directors. Um, I love the Coen Brothers. Um, and so when you look at a movie like Raising Arizona, which I think is just a just a, a gut bustingly funny comedy, <laughs> um, you know, there's there's obviously uh, jokes in the movie, but the characters don't know that they're making jokes. You know, they're not um, doing anything that's out of character for themselves and the camera and the the particular editing of it, um, that's kind of where the jokes start to come out, you know? Or if you look at like an Edgar Wright movie, like you look at Hot Fuzz, um, that movie is is totally uh, kind of bombastic and, and ridiculous, but the jokes are, are coming out more of, of the craft out of the camera, out of the, um, the editing and the sound design than from like a character who's like on screen kind of telegraphing. I'm making a joke now, you know, um, he's not just saying it, the movie's embodying it. And so when I talk about delight, I'm, I'm mainly talking about that aesthetic delight. There's, there's kind of something, um, something about the whole execution of the work that I think is, is really, um, where that, that sense of delight, like kind of most like richly, comes about. And I think that's partly what Frost is saying. Cause I, and I'm, I'm not saying that delight is just delightful or happy feelings. Um, it's not just like a feel good kind of thing. Uh, and if you read, um, home burial, for example, one of Frost's poems, um, there's a delight just in the way that, uh, it, it's this dialogue between this husband and wife who have lost one of their children. Um, and so it's not a delightful subject. Um, but 
Frost renders it in such a delightful language in the way that there's a line break in the way that, um, you know, the kind of the subtle contours of their words and the subtext beneath the words, you know, that's kind of where um, the real delight of, of a poem like that is. Um, and so even, you know, a tragedy, even something, even a movie that's, that's you might say is a sad movie, uh, you can still find some kind of delight in it in, in the execution of it. Yeah, I want to push back on your definition of Deloitte just the delight just a little bit because um, you were saying that the delight is sort of when you apprehend these subtleties, and yeah. I think that that delight doesn't necessarily have to be a conscious apprehension of those subtleties, but it certainly yeah. it certainly has to begin with those subtleties being there objectively, and then uh-huh. and then there's probably something about the way the work of art grips you or has you in its grasp, regardless of whether or not you're aware of the subtleties. Um, but but it, it's going to grip you in a different way than something that's just mere, um, sort of mere, uh, I don't know, mere like appetitive, uh, you know, appealing to your appetitive senses, right? Like, yeah, um, sure. this might make some some people upset, but if I were to compare what I just talked about with this Edward Hopper Nighthawks painting to like a Thomas Kincaid scene, <laughs> um, Thomas Kincaid, I'm not sure about what your opinion is of, uh, of Kincaid Chandler, but, uh, it's just to me like total kitsch. Like there's, there's nothing yeah. deeper there. It's just like, let me paint this like beautiful sort of shire bucolic scene that is totally divorced from any element of reality anywhere, period. And you can look right. at that and be like, ah, this like appeals to my desire for warmth and safety and just like peacefulness, um, kind of appealing to, to the appetitive side of us. You look at an Edward Hopper painting, something like Nighthawks, we have the, you know, a woman and a man who are uh, sitting next to each other, but maybe not friends. We have a man who's working the night shift all alone in the diner. We have another man who is uh, deep in thought, but all by himself. In all, it's a pretty isolating scene. It looks pretty austere, pretty dark with the exception of the light that's in the diner. Um, And so this is not something that appeals to your repetitive desires in that sense. This is something that mm. grips you in a, on a different level, even if you're not totally aware of, of why that is. Um, and that's how yeah. it was for me. Yeah. And then it was actually, I watched a YouTube kind of explainer video talking through a lot of the work of Edward Hopper. And I was like, oh, this, I th- I'm seeing now why I think this this subject is so appealing to me, why this painting is so appealing to me, because it has all these subtleties that I wasn't even aware of on a conscious level, but maybe I was subconsciously. There's something, there's some subtlety, there's some nuance there that appeals to us at a deeper level than simply our, our appetites. And I think that's where the objective criteria for art can be located. Yeah. And I think, I think in, in movies that comes a lot through the tone, you know, um, like you can be watching it and, and kind of not necessarily regardless, but sometimes regardless of what, what exactly is happening on screen, um, the the tone and the lens through which uh, the filmmakers are showing you it, like that tells you so much about, um, you know, whether or not this is meant to be funny or whether or not you're supposed to take it seriously or, or what. And so um, I, I just think that um, there's so much uh, that's there. Yeah, like it's just under the surface that, that um, can kind of jive with you. You know, like there are some people who just like, find a certain uh director or certain you know type of humor and then that's kind of their thing um and and i think that um 
that's probably uh, because of some element of like their personality or something works with that like set of aesthetic principles, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. So let's talk about this Scorsese thing. Uh, and maybe this can help sort of apply some of the principles that we're talking about. Because again, I don't want this to sound like we're just being stuffy, crotchety <laughs> critics who are like, this yeah. is an art and this is art. Because as you said, there's an element of subjectivity to it. But I think it's also worth noting, as you have, that there's an element of objectivity. And if you look at, uh, you know, I mean, just just to uh, to reiterate that it's not it's not necessarily bad to watch these things that aren't art. I was watching Twenty One Jump Street the other day, which is um, <laughs> you know Jonah Hill, Channing Tatum, like the you know one of the dumbest of comedies. It's funny, but it, but it's certainly not art, you know. And so um, uh, I think we can we can objectively say and, and reasonably uh, without controversy that something like Twenty One Jump Street is not art. <laughs> and and something even honestly even something like star wars i think could be art uh, especially as compared to 21 jump street you know i think those two things are trying to do something different um mm -hmm. i think i would probably say that star wars is probably not art in my definition but I, I i could see i could maybe construct a reasonable case for star wars being art um that i think would be a lot harder to do with something like 21 jump street um but yeah. martin scorsese doesn't like the marvel universe and mm -hmm. uh, he had some choice words for it and basically said that, uh, you know, none of them are, are true films. So what do you make of that claim? Well, I mean, the, the word he uses is amusement ride. <laughs> that, uh, you know, Marvel films are, are akin to an, an amusement ride, um, that their, their prime purpose is that, that kind of excitement, that titillation, that spectacle. Um, but underneath, there's not this grappling with some kind of genuine human experience. And I think that, I mean, this kind of gets to the second half of the Frost quote, like beginning in delight and ending in wisdom. Um, I think that um, art, like good stuff, you know, really uh, engages with big questions, uh, which is to say stuff that, that everyone has to ask. Questions that um, any, you know, kind of real person who um, has, you know, any kind of um, engagement with the world around them is going to have to come face to face with these questions in some way underneath the surface, um, even if they're not really um, willing to ask the questions outright. It's stuff that you have to confront, uh, you know, questions like, um, why like why are why is there evil in the world you know where do, what's the source of all of the problems that we keep seeing what's the right um way for us to conduct ourselves in society and in government and and all these kinds of things and these are you know big abstract questions um but i think the more a film engages with that um then the more staying power it has um not just because it you know it it it's highbrow uh, but because actually it's, it's, you might even say it's, it's, it's lower brow, like it goes all the way down. It's, it's not just something for one particular, um, sector part of society, but it's something that everybody uh, can really chew on. Um, and so I, I think that, uh, when, when Scorsese says that he wants a film that, uh, is, is wrestling with these kind of deep uh, fundamental aspects of, of what it means to be human. Um, I think he's, he's wanting something that after the spectacle's over, you're going to be asking 
yourself the same questions that the characters are, are grappling with. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and I mean, I think what he said was that there's one of his criticisms of the Marvel movies was, was that there's no risk, right? Like they're yeah, right. It's it's a it's a predetermined problem. It's a predetermined solution, right? We know that there's right. Iron Man. We know that there's going to be a villain who tries to get Iron Man, and we know that Iron Man is going to be the villain in the end. I mean, r- rinse repeat for all. How many are there now? Like fourteen movies or something like that. Oh, um, it's like twenty three. Okay, so just okay. So there we go. Just way too many, right? I mean, way too many to follow this boilerplate thing. Like, I have nothing against comic hero movies, and in fact, I love the original Iron Man. I think it's it's uh, fantastic. Um, I talked uh, I talked on the podcast a while ago about uh, Avengers Endgame and and what it does and does not do. Um, and what it doesn't do well specifically. And I think part of it is that it just falls victim to this rinse repeat thing. And then it also just, it goes way too cosmic, you know? And I think one of the, one of the ways that we can have risk in Scorsese's framework is we can, we can make the risk personal. We can make it a, we can make it about people. I mean, it's, it's much harder to have that risk when we're just talking about, um, and this kind of goes back to the Star Wars thing too. And we're just talking about death, death stars that can destroy planets or, you know, villains like Thanos who can destroy half the world with a snap of his fingers, literally. Um, you know, that's, it might be risk in the grandest sense because we're looking at, you know, countless people losing their lives, whole civilizations wiped out, but it's not a, it's not a risk. Uh, it's not a risk at the personal level in the way that I think narrative is most, right. most effective. Um, right. And so I think that's, that's one problem. Um, but I think I think you're you're absolutely right in just pointing out like what he was what he was complaining about it. I mean, I would push back against him a little bit, uh, just in in painting them all with a broad brush. As I mentioned, Iron Man I think is really good. That was the first of its kind um, in that mm-hmm. respect. Maybe the first Captain America as well. I think that was like pitting the you know uh, archetype of the American uh, the American superhero against a uh, a sort of Axis power type villain like you know Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but even, even more recently, uh, probably my, one of my top 10 favorite movies, period, not in the Marvel universe, but period is Thor Ragnarok, um, in which, uh, <laughs> yes. Taika Waititi, uh, who I know you love from Jojo rabbit fame. Um, yes. Oh he, man, Jojo. It's, it's, it's great. Yeah. I mean, and Waititi is just amazing. And like the way he directs Thor Ragnarok, I think I, I doubt Scorsese's seen it. He probably gave up on the Marvel stuff after like three or four of these, but Thor Ragnarok is just uh, so self-referential and like ironically self-aware, it just pokes fun at the rest of the Marvel universe all throughout. Um, yeah. and, and I think because of that, it's saying something deeper about its own existence, you know, and its own sort of place in the the larger Marvel canon. And I think it's really interesting in that way. And so to me, Thor Ragnarok is one of the the crowning achievements of the uh, of the Marvel universe. It's it's definitely not Endgame. Uh, it's it's not um, what's the what's the second to last one called the the, the first half of Endgame. Uh, Infinity War? Yeah, it's not Infinity War either. I mean, that was just too cosmic, too grand, too, you know, rinse, repeat. Uh, but Thor Ragnarok, right. this little gem that's kind of sitting outside of all of the established storylines of Marvel, that to me is like the crowning achievement of the Marvel Universe. There are a couple things to talk about there, and, and one of them has to do just with going back to the basics of, of drama. Uh, Aristotle in the Poetics, you know, says that... Um, intention and obstacle, you know, you have to have, um, some kind of goal and you have to have some kind of, um, some kind of struggle to, to go up against it. And the thing that, um, the Marvel films and a lot of, you know, it's a temptation for a lot of bigger scale films to do is to completely externalize all of the conflict, 
which is to say that when we're talking about uh, the obstacle of the film, we're talking about something that's huge, something that is completely outside of our main characters. And it's something that can be destroyed by, you know, removing that one kind of external thing. Um, but I think uh, we can all say that there's no one kind of external thing that is to blame uh, for all of the problems, but rather there's there's more internal things, you know, that uh, when we look around the world, we are implicated in the problems that we see. Um, and so uh, seeing a way in which there's this kind of internal struggle is, I think, um, it's not necessary for every story, but, uh, you know, it, it it's certainly a good first step. Yeah. And that, actually, your point about the sort of uh, externalization. Um, that was something that Josh Goldman and I talked uh, about on his episode of the Popcast last May. I think it was season one, episode 45. So if listeners want to go find the Popcast um, and look at, I think, May 10th, 2019, Josh and I talked all about that kind of criticism of Avengers Endgame. Um, but, but abstracting now this idea to the larger film universe, Chandler, um, what do you think, you know, I, I look at, I look at movies that are big hits now and i think parasite is a great example of what we're talking about as art yeah it's it's something that is certainly saying something deeper something much more important something like you know any any work by tarantino including once upon a time in hollywood i think i would not have been upset if either of those films uh won an oscar right and i think it's great that parasite did but i think once upon a time was also deserving of that um, but there are other films, of course, that are made, you know, I'm looking, thinking of like, uh, fast nine or F nine, whatever it's called the new fast and furious, <laughs> uh, probably does not fit into this category. So, um, abstracting this to the, to the larger universe here, I mean, what do you think are some ways to distinguish between, uh, those that are saying something, saying something deeper about reality as we know it, or as we perceive it. And those that are really just trying to help us have a good time. Again, with a caveat that there's nothing wrong mm -hmm. with just, you know, watching something that is that is fun, right? Even if it's not saying anything deeper, nothing wrong with that at all. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's also not art. And I think it's it's important to distinguish between those two things. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that another helpful uh, distinguishing thing to think about, and this also involves uh, the viewer, not just the work, but also the viewer and how you approach a work. Uh, it's, you know, it's whether or not you're being active or whether or not you're being passive. Um, and I mean, I'm a big advocate for whenever you watch anything just to be thinking about it. Um, and I think that a lot of films, um, I, I, I won't, okay. I won't say a lot of films. I'll, I'll say that I think that it's a tendency in, um, bigger budget, uh, movies that are meant to, uh, please a wide kind of international audience. Um, that they prepackage the story in such a way that it's easy for the viewer to be passive. It's easy for the viewer to kind of take the movie in uh, rather than to have to ask questions of the movie and to kind of interrogate what's going on and, and try to reflect why, you know, like why, why did the filmmakers decide to do this thing over that thing? Um, there are some films um, that force you to ask those questions because otherwise you can't comprehend it. And there are some films um, that uh, asking those questions deepens the experience, but you can still kind of approach it um, 
for its surface pleasures as well. Um, and I, I want to read um, a quote from James Agee, who was a 20th century film critic and also a screenwriter, uh, talking about John Huston. Uh, John Huston did a bunch of westerns, um, and Agee says most movies are made in the evident assumption that the audience is passive and wants to remain passive. Every effort is made to do all the work, the seeing, the explaining, the understanding, and even the feeling. Houston is one of the few movie artists who, without thinking twice about it, honors his audience. His pictures are not acts of seduction or of benign enslavement, but of liberation, and they require of anyone who enjoys them the responsibilities of liberty. They continually open the eye and require it to work vigorously, and through the eye, the awakened curiosity and intelligence. That, by any virile standard, is essentially good entertainment. It is unquestionably essential to good art. And so I think when we're thinking about, um, you know, what what would be a good movie to watch versus what would be maybe just, um, or rather, what what would be a movie that would um, make your life richer rather than a movie that would get you a couple hours of entertainment um, is thinking about this, you know, this question. Will watching this movie uh, liberate you in some way, uh, lift your eyes up into something that's more worthy of your attention um, than than just uh, just the screen itself, you know, just the images that it produces. Um, and so, I think there's a way in which we can we can look through uh, we can look through movies and and then come to understand um, our life and our our place in the world, and uh, and also just you know, uh, learn more about other people's experience. Yeah. There's a couple things in that AG quote that I really appreciated. The, the first one is he says that is true entertainment at the end. And I yeah. like, I like his use of that word to describe good art in that sense. I normally think of entertainment as just like pure titillation, right? Like you're just sitting right. there, uh, having something to watch and, and like, you know, appealing to your appetitive desires in doing so. But what he's saying is that entertainment is actually something deeper than that. And, and I well, appreciate, I appreciate that kind of qualification. I think that, ha like, I, th I think that like everyone wants to think about things, right. You know, ev like everyone, yeah. uh, I, I think, I, I think that, um, ultimately like asking those questions and having to, uh, kind of process is thrilling you know it's really I, I think it's really uh probably the prime delight of any of any work of art um is you know when you find your favorite song and you keep coming back to it over and over again because every time you listen to it um there's some kind of meaning that that you're reminded of something some kind of truth that you can hold on to um and some kind of question that you're asking or some experience that it reminds you of and and so i think that um you know like to some extent, lean into that, and and there's all kinds of um, probing and, and and things that you can learn along the way. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And when you said active versus passive consumption, uh, my first thought was, you know, what if someone makes the counterpoint? Well, when I uh, when I play video games, I'm very actively consuming that, or mm -hmm. uh, or maybe more. Uh, <laughs> In a more funny example, when I'm on my Peloton bike, I'm actively consuming my exercise class, but that doesn't, you know, by de definition, make it art. So uh, I would just say to those those objections, the activity that you are talking about, Chandler, and correct me if I'm wrong. The way I understand it is the activity that you're talking about is an activity of the mind. Uh, it yeah. is an it is an orientation yeah. of the mind 
that is essentially uh, a an orientation that brings the mind towards a compl- uh, uh, a contemplation of higher goods. Um, yeah. Whereas you know Peloton is just you're you're very actively consuming it in the sense that you are uh, you know pedaling along on your spin bike while the spin instructor is telling you to go faster, uh, but that's a yeah, different sure. type of activity than an activity of the mind. And then video games, I think I think there actually are some video games that could qualify as art in that sense. I mean, there are some uh, you know open world video games where you're exploring the limits of a digital world and and doing things and engaging with digital avatars in ways that probably contemplate make you contemplate you know the mysteries of our own existence but then there are also ones where you're just doing the rinse repeat thing and you're you know parachuting into a uh, into a map and trying to <laughs> shoot all the bad guys and stuff and that's a fundamentally different type of video game as well um but yeah. i do think i do think some video games can certainly qualify as art uh but the activity yeah, sure. fundamentally is an activity of the mind it's an orientation of our contemplation towards a higher good yeah yeah well, Chandler, uh, maybe as a final question and a segue into uh, just giving a little bit of a teaser about your next project, uh, you probably don't want to say too much yet, but uh, but I, I'm excited about it. I have the privilege of being involved in it to some extent, and uh, I'm, a, I'm really excited about it. So you're working on a film project. Not sure how much you want to say. You know, don't I don't want to pressure you to say more than you want to at this point. Uh, listeners can stay tuned and go to uh, ChandlerRide.com or is it RideFilms.com? Uh, ChandlerRide.com. ChandlerRide.com. Uh, R-Y-D, ChandlerRide. Um, but tell us a little bit about that project and how you're incorporating some of these ideas into your work more broadly. Well, I'm going to go back to, I said earlier that I, I love watching The Office. <laughs> um, and what I realized is uh, that Michael Scott is actually a Don Quixote character. Um, and I, I I love Don Quixote just as a book because it's really funny. Um and it's about, you know, this knight who's read all this stuff that has um, essentially convinced him that the world is different from how it actually is. And he thinks that he's this knight in shining armor when in reality he's this old man riding this crotchety old horse. Um, and it gets him into all kind of trouble. And that book has, I mean, it's been interpreted in a lot of different ways, but I've realized that it shows up all over the place in movies and in television. And Michael Scott thinks that he is one thing when in actuality he's uh, kind of ridiculous, but he doesn't have that self-knowledge. And for these Don Quixote characters, um, their their character arc usually follows that they at some point have to have a disillusionment that then kind of is from a story perspective uh, a negative thing, but it produces character growth. And I've been really interested in trying to make a Don Quixote character into a film. Um, and so I, th- I think I've, I've found something. It's uh, kind of uh, dark comedy-ish uh, about um, these, these characters who are, are hooligans, but they think that they're badasses and they have this, this dream uh, that, is, that is kind of impossible um, for uh, their, their current situation. Um, so I won't go into all the details of, of that now, but but maybe in a later episode we could talk more about the the specifics. But uh, so far, it's it's been going well. Great. Well, uh, I will just say as a teaser that our listeners will be hearing more about this project as it develops, so they can stay tuned for that and go check out ChandlerRide.com if you want to follow along with Chandler's work. More to come on his most recent film project. Uh, I'm excited about it. I know he's excited about it. He's put in a lot of uh, a lot of work, uh, and hopefully, 
maybe listeners can uh, can hear something about that sooner rather than later, Chandler. Sounds good. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. If you have a question you want to pass along to me or Chandler, just go ahead and email me, Zach, Z-A-C, at vernacularpodcast.com. If it's for Chandler, I'd be happy to pass it along to him and we can get back in touch with you. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Keep listening to doctors and following the advice of our experts and public health officials. We'll get through this together and uh, listen to some of those recommendations Chandler provided for streaming stuff. And remember, it's it's okay to just sit there and watch something funny too. It doesn't all have to be art. Well, hey, hey art can be funny. That's well, I just mean something that's like <laughs> that's just this is basically funny. I'm I was thinking of Twenty One Jump Street when I said that. <laughs> but yeah, I would say art definitely can be funny. Uh, in some respects, I think the best art can be funny, uh, or the best art is funny. And I've also said I will plant my flag on this claim too. Some of our best social critics, the ones who help us think the most about what it means to be human are actually comedians 100 percent, yeah all right well on that note thanks for the clarification chandler <laughs> uh i'll talk to you in a couple weeks stay safe stay healthy have a great week you know that